From a totally different perspective? Ready for provocative conversation? Intriguing stories and inspiration? Then don't touch that dial. Welcome to Talk with Francesca. She'll give you something to talk about all week long. Now, here's Francesca. What if you took the time to really soak it? Hello, everyone. Welcome to Talk with Francesca. I'm Francesca Luca, your host, and I just want you to know that I appreciate you listening to my show, so speak to me, because my team and I spend lots of time and lots of energy thinking and preparing for our show about things that we care about, and I think that you will too. So let me know what you're thinking, if you find the show riveting, if you find the show valuable or horrific or offensive, you fill in the blank and just jet me an email at info at talkwithfrancesca.com. You can also go right to my website, talkwithfrancesca.com, and fill out the contact form. It'll get right to me. You can find me on Facebook. And if you miss part of the show, you can go to recent shows on my website, talkwithfrancesca.com, again, and listen there. And I'm also on iTunes, so there's plenty of places to listen to the show. So we've got lots to talk about today, so we're going to get started. I want to talk to you about the future that it is indeed female. Feminism is leading the way, and as conversations of pay gaps and sexual assault become more prevalent, so is female empowerment. We are uplifting each other more than ever on social media and in real life. And this is so important for little girls to witness as they turn into women. The world is hard enough, and we need women like Peggy Orenstein, who are pushing the feminist agenda forward. She is a New York Times bestseller, award-winning journalist, and advocate for women and girls alike. And she's here with us today to talk about her latest release, Don't Call Me Princess. So welcome, Peggy Orenstein, and thanks for joining us again on Talk with Francesca. Thanks for having me. So we've talked a couple of times. I think this is the third book we've we've talked about, right? We started. I think so, yeah. I think the first one was. Oh, I forget the name. Don't tell me. Don't was tell me. Was it Cinderella ate my daughter? Was yes, that yes, the first one we yes, talked yep, about? Yep, yeah. that's the first one we talked about. Mm-hmm. And then girls and sex, which mm-hmm. um, listeners loved. They really, really did. And I, I love the name. Don't call me princess. Um, I, I think that's a fabulous name. But so, so first of all, where did you come up with the name? I know that's kind of a loaded question, and we could talk about that for an hour, but, you know, just give me an Um, an idea. Well, titles are so hard, Francesca. Um, You know, I was was really just, I I wanted to communicate a couple of things with it. One was it it linked back to the um, issues in in Cinderella Ate My Daughter, which I think of as being kind of a continuum with um, girls and sex in terms of Mm. Cinderella Ate My Daughter was a lot about the, you know, what I started calling the princess industrial complex. And the ways that girls start from the earliest ages learning to value themselves from the outside in rather than from the inside out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was kind of, you know, I was kind of just being, and, and the other piece of it was that, you know, I think I'm funny. Um, oh, I, I always try to bring some, some levity to my, to, to what are some really serious topics. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was a little bit of a, you know, kind of, um, jokey title as well to to bring that aspect of my personality and my writing into it well you know i don't want to be called princess but i would like to be called queenie <laughs> exactly and there's that well that was always my you know my thing was or president you know i i told a friend who had a clothing line at one point there should be a t-shirt that says for or a onesie for little girls that says don't don't call me princess, call me president. She yeah. immediately yeah, yeah, made yeah. that, and yeah. it was a great, you know, it was, I, I should have taken a commission. Well, 
you know, that's I, why I'm a writer. Yeah. I don't think of things like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know that you have a little girl, but now at this point, let's see, it's been a couple of years since I've spoken to you. She's not little. I know. She's what, 15 yeah. now? Is she 15, 16? She is almost 15, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Know. You know, I, um, I have um, two nieces who are, they're twins, actually, and they're in their 20s. And, you know, it was around the holidays, and we were, I was talking to them about um, girls and sex, you know, and kind of getting mm-hmm. a, a feeling of the way they think. And, um, you know, dare I say this on the air, but so I, I had just met someone. I'm divorced, and I met this great guy, and I'm still seeing him. And um, but anyway, my niece, and it hadn't been a long time. I had just had dated him, maybe I don't know, three times. Actually, if mm-hmm. I were a writer, I'd write a book calling it "I'm Breaking the Three Date Rule," and I'm sure you know what that is. Um, but mm-hmm. but anyway, she's one of my nieces said to me, "So are you hooking up with him?" And I was just like. <laughs> what like you know it's just like and so we got into this whole thing because I remember us talking about hooking up and when you wrote your last book you know and it just made me think like wow you know and um it's just it's it so it is it's a different world but anyway I don't want to get off onto the tangent but anyway so don't call me princess includes 30 years worth of writing what what's it look like to look back on those pieces oh gosh well you know, I, first of all, it, it, I, every time somebody says that, I just think, really? I can't believe I, I can't believe I've been writing that long. But, you know, what what was amazing to me in looking at it was both that, you know, for me as a writer, that there were real through lines in terms of my um, interests in women and girls and empowerment, self-objectification, reproductive rights, um, sexuality, all of the things that, you know, are, are in my later work were there all the way along, but also that the work was still so not only relevant, but I think um, important in in terms of setting a context for the moment that we're going through today uh, in terms of the revived interest in politics and resistance and women's rights to understand sort of the the, the spiral of that, um, the, the up, what I think is really an upward spiral of those issues and ideas um, is really important to see the echoes, you know, the, the ways that we were working on the same issues and thinking about the same issues 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, um, was, you know, I don't, honestly, Francesca, I don't know if I would have felt like I wanted to, like, the, the, the compelled to put a book like this out if, if Hillary Clinton had won the election. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. But given where we are, right. um, it was just really interesting to look at the ways, you know, to look at the talking about the, 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 Women's March in the um, 19, late 1980s, that until the Women's March after Trump was elected, was the largest mm-hmm. protest in American history. You know, I mean, it's interesting to sort of compare those things. Mm-hmm. So it was really important to me to look at the arc of um, what has been going on and, and both led us to this moment and allowed us to have this moment and also echoed this moment through time. My actually, my intern's throwing up a, a sign to me right now. She wants to know if your experience, uh, or wait a minute, in your experience, she said, how has the word feminist itself evolved in the last few decades, and how have millennials connected with it similarly or differently than in the past? Mary Ellis, you're so smart. <laughs> yeah, what a smart intern you got there. Oh, she's brilliant. Um, oh my God, she's. You know what? She's brilliant. She's just. Yeah. You know what? She's so darn smart. She she's crazy. It just it blows I my know. mind. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, um, anyway, yeah, you know, I think 
what I, I was just talking about this with my daughter actually, and and saying that I feel like like suddenly you know the girl who took off her braces and you know whatever and became the became the popular girl at the prom because for for so many years the it was really hard to be a writer who had a feminist perspective and I was the, the what people would. Uh, what editors would say to me, and I and I think more than almost anybody, I have been allowed a voice all this time, mm-hmm. and I say allowed because you know there's gatekeepers to this. But um, what they would say is that they were looking for a con- contrarian viewpoint, and contrarian to them meant a woman who would basically espouse the viewpoints they wished they could say as men, but weren't able to because it would look bad. Mm-hmm. And the, what they thought of as as my perspective was the status quo, when in fact it wasn't the status quo at all. You know what they, what they were trying to get the stat, somebody else to say the status quo, but say it as a woman, and that would be contrarian. Mm-hmm. So it was it was really hard for me to to get my work out there with that with this voice, and that's I think partly in fact why I did start getting a little funnier was because I could get it out um, by being funny, where in ways that I couldn't if I was more straightforward and when all of a sudden i mean just a couple of weeks ago i was in in bloomington indiana and i walked by an urban outfitters store and there was a pillow in the window that said um like a decorative pillow for a kid's dorm or something that said feminist 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 on it and i just stopped and stared at it and i thought i mean yes this was the commercialization of feminism but also you know there were years and years and decades where if you said you were a feminist it was like, you know, nobody would talk to you. You know, no, women really struggled. Like, do I want to identify with that word and what does it mean? And now all of a sudden it's like everybody wants to, everybody's a feminist and everybody understands. And so it's, it's kind of thrilling for me mm-hmm. <laughs> right now, but it's been a long haul. Oh, yeah. So some of your essays are really personal. I mean, how has your own experience informed your writing as with breast cancer, fertility and motherhood? Yeah, you know, it always. It, I've I've always um, really my my writing always comes from personal experience. Either mm-hmm. from you know with with miscarriage. Um, I, I think one of my very favorite pieces I ever wrote was uh, a piece on having a miscarriage in Japan um, that led me to you know, to do a, a ritual that they had there where you recognize and you know, mark the fact that you've had this mm-hmm, miscarriage mm-hmm. and that it feels like something, that it feels like a mm-hmm. loss. Yeah, oh, well, it is. not something we have. Yeah. And yet that also bumped up against my pro-choice politics. So I I wrote a story about the journey of, you know, of trying to figure out how to do this ritual because nobody would really tell me. And um, not out of, I mean, it's a long, it, well, you can read the story, but, uh, you know, doing the ritual, finding the place, you know, getting lost, all of this stuff, and 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 going through this personal mm-hmm. um, trip, but also struggling with if I recognize that this miscarriage meant something to me, what does that mean about my ideas about abortion? Mm-hmm. And that piece, um, I, I ended up actually not writing it for over a year, mm-hmm. even though I took notes. You know, I, I, mm-hmm. I wrote things down because I was afraid. I don't know. Too painful. I had a lot of fear around that piece. Why? I guess I was afraid of being blamed for waiting too long to get pregnant. I think I was afraid I was going to... It wasn't the attacking over the abortion. I think it was more personal, but but, um, it was one of the most rewarding pieces I've ever written, and people 
still tell me that they, mm-hmm. they carry it in their wallets or oh. have it in their desk drawer. You yeah. know, I think um, rituals are a really big deal. And I think they're, I really think they make a big difference in, in going I through. I think they really, really, yeah. yeah um, I went through one once, not all that long ago, and boy, it was like a life changer for me. Just really amazing. Just it's it's a beautiful thing, you know. And it just because it marks, you yeah. know, it really it does. So you uh, need things marked. Yeah, it's it's important. It's a it's a super important um, aspect of life, and it's really interesting to note where we don't have rituals, mm-hmm. you know. And that was one of the places in women's lives, you know. I, I'm. Jewish, and you know, you say a prayer after you, if you're an Orthodox Jew, after you use the restroom, you know, but there was nothing for miscarriage. And that, you know, you were, you were just supposed to say, well, you know, you'll get pregnant again. And, and I had multiple miscarriages, so this was one among many. Mm. And uh, mm. uh, it was, um, uh, it was really meaningful to be able to go through this process. Um, you know, you've spoken in your previous book, books about hoping to open up a conversation. And what would you hope your reader would come away from with the book? Uh, I guess a, a number. I, I think of this book as being something that I, I don't know that I, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this as a writer, but I don't know that I know that people will pe- that people will read it straight through. I, I mean, they're, they're, it's broken up into a number of sections mm-hmm. that address some of the major themes in my work about you know about body about prominent women I've interviewed about motherhood about raising girls and I I hope that you know it adds perspective if, if people do read through the whole thing it's that's you know ideal but it also is it's it's bits it's it's articles and essays and mm-hmm. so it offers the opportunity to sort of get perspective on what you want to but I always want to um, open conversation I always think of my work as being kind of window and mirror so that you can Mm-hmm. You know, look into it and see other people's lives, but also see something of yourself reflected, and come away with that with a different way, a different perspective on, you know, on the issues and ideas of being a woman. Talk to us about your daughter. How are how are how is she <laughs> developing into a woman? I mean, is she? Do you feel um, that? Do you feel that? Um, you know, what you the way you look at things, she's picking up on it and, and kind of following those footsteps, or is she at that age where she's just bucking mom? Oh, no, she's, we, um, I really think that, I was thinking about this yesterday, that there's a way that feminism has become um, a real common bond between us. Mm. And, you know, she has the feminism of a, of a ninth grader, you know, and, and mm. that's, that's a different, it's not different, but it's a, you know, it's its own thing, mm-hmm. having, just coming into her ideas and testing them and thinking about them. And we talk about all of those issues a lot. And I think she really, I mean, you know, she's still, we still are mother and teenage daughter, don't get me wrong. But um, I also think that she sees me as an ally. And I think that what I'd hoped and, and what I see true, you know, as much as I think is possible with a 14 year old is that the the kind of scaffolding that we've laid down by talking about a lot of issues that maybe one doesn't typically talk about, whether, you know, particularly around sexuality and all of that, um, have opened a door. Just the other day, actually, she said to me, don't don't tell her that I'm telling you this, um, listeners, but uh, we... Um, <laughs> I picked her up after. She's a swim... She's on swim team, and I, I picked her up, and um, she said that there was a girl there who 
Oh, maybe I should. Well, all right. She uh, I was thinking, maybe I shouldn't tell this story. Oh, come who, on. <laughs> who, who, who had had her period since she was nine years old, but had never used a tampon. And it's swim team, right? So you've got to use a tampon. Yeah. And uh, my daughter had to help her um, figure out how. And she was just, my daughter was kind of stunned by the girl's ignorance of her yeah. anatomy. Yeah. And she said, uh, you know, she said the girl was crying and all this stuff. And she, she said, now I really understand, Mom, why we talk about these things, mm. you and I. Yeah. And, yeah. And I said, yeah. And, you know, it's not just about tampons. It's a, if you were that ignorant of your anatomy, you're open, you're opening yourself up to harm or you're, ri- you're at risk of harm and you're also at risk of not enjoying yourself. Mm-hmm. And those are both really upsetting things. And she said, yeah, I really thought a lot about that. Talk about so that, it, about the enjoying part. Those two things? Yeah. Yeah. Well, both of them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously the harm is kind of obvious yeah, if you don't exactly. understand, but yep. you know, it's really clear. I mean, much of Girls and Sex and, and some of the, the essays in this book are about the disconnect um, when you were talking earlier about hooking up, girls can talk about hooking up. They can talk about engaging in sexual activity as if it's like sort of nothing. But there's this disconnect between engagement and enjoyment. Mm-hmm. And they feel this entitlement to engage but not to enjoy. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of still a lot of shame around um, their bodies, around their genitals particularly. And there was just a – and in our own – we don't teach girls really, you know, basic anatomy. At best they learn – about that kind of internal, you know, the thing that looks like a, that diagram where it looks like a steer head or a mm-hmm. George O'Keefe painting or something. Mm-hmm. But we, you know, we never say vulva. We certainly never say clitoris. Mm-hmm. Fewer than half of girls 14 to 17 ever masturbate. Mm-hmm. And then they go into partnered encounters, and we think that somehow magically they're going to believe that sex is about them and that they can have a voice and that they can articulate their wants and needs and limits or even know what those might be. So we really set them up, um, both you know, for sex not being about them, and for potential risk, and for lack of enjoyment in their early experiences. And there was just one of many studies that came out just a couple of weeks ago that said that girls that don't understand their bodies, how their bodies function, on, and understand their own pleasure and enjoyment in their bodies are much more vulnerable. And this makes common sense um, to engaging in sexual behavior and having intercourse because somebody else wants them to, not because it's something they want to do. Right, right. Um, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Talk with Francesca. I'm speaking with Peggy Orenstein. She's just written a book, Don't Call Me Princess. Um, I'm curious, uh, many of your essays feel particularly timely in the obviously current political climate. Can you speak about your piece on boys in the age of Trump? Yeah, well, so um, that is, of course, the the embarrassing thing about that piece was that I assumed he would never be elected. <laughs> when he's, you know, when Hillary wins and he's not elected, we will all know. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, so that piece uh, is about what it, you know, the lessons that boys were learning from the pussy grab incident and from the way that Trump treats women. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, the, the, the upside is, I mean, I honestly don't know if Clinton had been elected, if we would be in this moment of, of change. I don't know that women would have woken up and said, you know what, we're not taking this anymore. Well, that's a good thing, um, though, right? I know. Right. I know. And that is, I think, the silver lining of, right. you know, a very dark cloud. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, is it enough of a silver lining? I don't know. But it's a big one. Right. And 
so for me, what's been interesting is that I'm shifting now. It, that that last piece in this collection was a signal of what I'm where I'm going next, which is that I'm doing a book on boys now. Um, oh wow! And, yeah, and it's been super interesting, you know, to spend. I, I I'm kind of in the middle of the interviews now, but to spend the last um, year and a half uh, talking to boys, so that the 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 bursting forth of the um, Me Too moment happened kind of in the middle of my research, which has been kind of, you know, so it's ended up being possibly the most interesting time to be talking to boys that I can imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really, you know, I, I, I do think after 30 years of writing about girls and women, I want to take that perspective to write about boys, not in a, you know, boys have trouble too and girls should just shut up kind of way, which is kind of what one typically gets from from work on boys not i mean there's some absolutely brilliant masculinity scholars like you know like michael kimmel and um cj pasco but the but there's a lot of um idea that it's a zero-sum game that if you pay attention to to girls you're somehow canceling out boys and vice versa and what i really wanted to do was like okay we know we need to make change the place that we need to make change is where we're raising our boys so what does that look like? And these and there are so many boys who really are wanting a different way. And how can we give that to them? So, so you're not having that, a hard time talking to boys. They're they're just as easy as talking to the girls. Am I having a hard time? Yeah, well, are they having a hard time talking to you? Oh, um, yeah. And you know, I mean, in that one of the things that that's in the piece of the, in the raising a man in the age of Trump, you know, is what does it mean for a boy to. Um, try to stand up and take responsibility or try to challenge the status quo or you know when when there's a group of guys who are talking smack about women how do you be the guy who's who is it enough to just not say anything and how do you stand up and there's a boy in in that piece who's working in a bicycle shop um where all the guys spend all the you know all day long saying gross things about women and girls and he's just like keeping his head down and the, the kind of one of the more G, you know, I guess PG rated things they say is that they they call the um, coffee shop or the cafe down the street the bitches because only women work there. And so they'll say, hey, you want to go grab a cup of coffee at the bitches? And that's like one of the nicer things they say. So he just he just he, he didn't participate, but he didn't challenge it. And mm-hmm. he was kind of wrestling with what does that mean? Is it enough? Am I the guy on the bus? who doesn't say anything when Trump says that stuff and what does it mean to be the guy who doesn't say anything mm-hmm. and just feels uncomfortable but doesn't challenge it is that you know who are you and boys have a lot to say about their you know their anxieties and and the, the difficulty of standing up and the desire to stand up and how do you do it and nobody's really helping them with that right um Peggy we do need to take a short break but when we come back I'd like to talk about how um, girls go about breaking the uh, free from the double standards and societal expectations the world's placing on them at such a young age so listeners stay with us here we're talking to Peggy Orenstein who has just written a book don't call me princess we'll be right back don't go away Coffee no longer has to be a guilty pleasure. 
You've heard that red wine is good for you because of nature's most potent antioxidant, resveratrol. Vera Roasting Company makes the only coffee infused with it. Each cup of Vera's coffee delivers the same amount of resveratrol as found in a glass of red wine without the alcohol, sulfates, or tannins. Years of medical studies indicate that regular resveratrol in our diets promote cardiovascular health, slows the progression of certain cancers, Alzheimer's disease, and type 2 diabetes. Vera Roasting Coffee won double-blind taste tests against the leading coffees. Vera Roasting also offers its delicious heart-healthy coffees with added vitamin D to help Ward off the winter blues. You can't get Vera Roasting Coffee in stores. You need to go to veraroasting.com. Free and fast shipping is always available. veraroasting.com. Vera like Vera Bradley. Go to veraroasting.com. That's veraroasting.com. Looking for an authentic Italian meal in an intimate setting? Then you might just want to venture out to Boston this weekend and dine at Terra Mia Ristorante, a true gem among all those rhinestones in Boston's North End. This cozy tutorial with stucco walls and beam ceilings specializes in creative interpretations of Italian classics. Like the cuisines here, the atmosphere is elegant yet understated. Since opening in 1993, Terramia Restaurante has aimed to convince diners that there's always more to Italian food than just red sauce. Over the years, the innovative and beloved restaurant has done a great deal of convincing, and best of all, it's reasonably priced. This best-kept secret is worth the trip. Call 617-523-3112 or visit terramiarestaurante.com. It can be easy to lose sight of your dreams and aspirations, especially when they seem so out of reach. Between school, kids, and work, your true desires can get left on the back burner. But you should never settle for less than what you deserve and what you know in your heart of hearts you want to do. Carrie Hummingbird has developed a program that will cast away your fear and self-doubt and inspire you to take charge of your life. But don't take my word for it. Christina Wolf took the program and described it as a trustworthy guide to show you how to transform yourself at the soul level. You will have to dig deep, and it won't be easy. But then again, nothing worth having is. Life begins at the end of your comfort zone, and your comfort zone ends at the Reinvent Yourself program. So what are you waiting for? Visit www.carriehummingbird.com. You'll be glad you did. Captain Lord Mansion is the ultimate bed and breakfast experience. It's the only AAA four-diamond bed and breakfast in Kennebunkport. But it's so much more. It's the perfect, elegant, romantic getaway. Relax at their day spa. Be pampered in your room with heated floors, jetted showers and tubs, gas fireplaces, king and queen beds, flat screen TVs, and all the quaintness with all the modern conveniences. Be surrounded by impeccable gardens, waterfalls, fountains, a putting green, a charming gift shop, wine cellar, the list goes on and on, including a full three-course breakfast. This is a stay that you will never forget. Engage in our special offers. Call 207-967-3141. 207-967-3141. CaptainLordMansion.com. In Kennebunkport, Maine. Memories and elegance await you. Located in Boston's North End holds one of our best-kept secrets, Antico Forno, ranked number nine of the top ten Italian restaurants around the world within the category of being one of the most authentic. With a welcoming family feel, it's hard to argue the experience you have when enjoying dinner at Antico Forno. 
Best known for their brick oven pizza, their world-class traditional cuisine does not fall far behind. Come enjoy dinner at Antico Forno and feel like part of the family. Open daily from 11.30 a.m. until 10 p.m. Call us today at 617-723-6733 or visit us at AnticoFornoBoston.com. Tides is beachside dining at its best all year round. Located at the end of the Nahant Causeway, directly on Nahant Beach, the ocean views from the dining room and the pub can't be beat, no matter what the season. Nominated for Best of the North Shore from North Shore Magazine for Best Alfresco Dining, Best Kid-Friendly Restaurant, Best Lobster Dinner, and Best Water View. Why would you go anywhere else? Whether you choose their dining room, a frosty pint at their bar, or a sun-drenched deck on the Hunt Beach, they guarantee you great atmosphere with super food and service. Their menu is full of fresh, high-quality seafood, prime rib, chicken, pasta, and pizza that everyone will love. Check out their drink menu for fun cocktails, 30 ice-cold beers on tap, and their well-rounded wine list with their state-of-the-art tap wines. They feature full-service lottery and kino. Tides is the place to watch any big game. They have over 20 HD TVs. At Tides, they specialize in casual dining with food that's just delicious, not pretentious. Tides is a fantastic restaurant anytime, summer or winter, lunch or dinner, rain or shine. The new Cobblestone Cafe on Hanover Street in Boston brings casual, on-the-go American fare to the North End, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Open daily at 7 a.m., Cobblestone Cafe offers burgers, barbecue, salads, fries, milkshakes, seafood, and the very popular Snickerdoodle iced coffee. Delivery and catering are also available. Cobblestone Cafe, 227 Hanover Street in Boston. For more information, call 857-263-8057 or visit them online at cobblestonecafene.com. Okay, we are back, and you're listening to Talk with Francesca. I'm speaking with Peggy Orenstein. She is a New York Times bestselling author and award-winning journalist and advocate for women and girls alike. She's here with us today, and we're talking about her newest release, Don't Call Me Princess. So welcome back, Peggy. Thank you. So how do we go about uh, girls breaking free from double standards and the societal expectation that the world is obviously, you know, places on them at such a young age? Uh, I think we have to make them visible. You know, I think that's the very first step is to make them visible for girls. And, you know, one of the pieces in, in the um, in Don't Call Me Princess is about dress codes. And that's one of the places that I think it, it, it's, oh, boy, people ask me about that all the time. And it's so it's such a it's such a tough one, because as a parent, I am completely sympathetic with parents who watch their daughters go out the door and go, ah, mm-hmm. you know, but. But I think this is one of those double standard areas where what we tend to do is focus on the girl instead of having a bigger picture and talking to girls about what self-objectification is and the real harms that um, it, it brings. So we know, and, 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 and questioning why the fashion industry, why the beauty industry wants to foist this on girls when it's so damaging to their mental health. So talking to them about, um, you know, uh, 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 that self-objectification we know brings, you know, depression, um, negative body image, actually, you know, reduce, you know, makes your body image worse. It's linked to uh, eating disorders and self-cutting. And there's, there's this great, I always talk about this great study um, on, on cognitive 
impact where somebody, t- a researcher took um, young men and young women, college students who were math majors and put them in, a, in dressing rooms in a mall and had them try, half of them try on sweaters and half of them try on bathing suits and then gave them a math test. And the young women in the bathing suit scores were depressed related in, in ter- um, compared to the young women in sweaters. Really? But there was no such difference. Yeah, but there was no difference with the guys. So there was something about, and they were wearing one pieces. They weren't wearing like little skin, and they had heaters, so it wasn't because they were cold. But there was something about having their their idea, their consciousness of their body mm-hmm. triggered that immediately affected their cognitive impact. It affects self-objectification, affects your sense that you can be um, politically effective, and it even, you know, in a real bait and switch, it's uh, it's linked with you know, dissatisfaction in your sex life. So if we know all of that, and yet we still over and over will kind of fall prey to self-objectification as adult women as well as girls, you know, what does that mean? So rather than saying, you know, this girl is policing individual girls to help girls recognize, what I think that ends up doing is making them feel rebellious and feeling that self-objectification becomes like a feminist act, which is you know, mm-hmm. really makes you want to poke yourself in the eye with a fork. Right. But um, instead, helping them see a cultural context that's working against them um, helps them rebel in the right direction. How do you feel that the Me Too movement has affected uh, girls? Uh, I think it's it's supporting them tremendously. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, girls is a big is a big category, right. you know, and. I see things, you know, obviously and in, in many different ways, but um, in terms of the demographic that I tend to write about, which is right. which is a more middle-class demographic, um, what I see in college women, obviously, is that they are really active in, and, and some young men, too, really active in thinking about what this means, what they want, what they expect. It's changing their willingness to just, you know, take it the way that, that mm-hmm. our generation did. Um, and girls, my daughter's age, high school girls, they're super activists too now. And it's, you know, whether it's around feminism or even around like, uh, the, you know, walk, the walkout for the gun control thing um, or the gun violence, excuse me. Um, mm-hmm. It's, I, I end up feeling so, I mean, people, people will always say, isn't it kind of, don't you feel a little depressed that this, the kind of thing that you were writing about 30 years ago, it's still going on. And I think, you know, not really, because it's so tremendously exciting to me to see this new generation. And I don't always, you know, my daughter and I don't always see eye to eye on feminist issues. I don't always see eye to eye with the college women that I talk to. Sometimes, you know, what they're talking about, I might think, I really don't, I don't know why you think that's a big deal. Or, you know, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. we don't always agree. But I'm still so excited that they are doing this and they're taking charge and they're stepping up. It's thrilling. So I'm, I feel more excited and hopeful. It's, and again, it's weird because we've got a president who is like the least hopeful Mm. symbol of our nation to me, Mm -hmm. but yet it is the most exciting time to be a woman who's interested in, you know, in, in equality and empowerment Mm -hmm. Then I, you know, then I can remember. Mm-hmm. You, you had mentioned you were talking before about um, girls 
um, engaging in sexual activity but not enjoying it. And you did a TED yeah. talk about how girls feel empowered um, in how in to, you know to engage in sexual activity. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? Um, yeah, I mean that's it's what girls would say. I think that what's happened is that for so many girls. Um, that they feel that they can they can engage that it's that that it's all right to be sexual to talk about hookups but again that you know they're not they're not entitled to enjoy it that we haven't addressed um girls pleasure we haven't addressed reciprocity uh one of the things i talk about is um the ways that uh oral sex has played out um in in these relationships so um it girls would tell me over and over um, especially, you know, starting in high school, oral sex was no big deal. Um, and it's the biggest change in American sexual behavior in the 20th century was that it became less intimate than intercourse if it's going female to male. So it was a kind of one-way street. Mm-hmm. And they had all kinds of reasons for doing that. You know, they, it, they thought it would improve a relationship. They thought it, it boosted their social status. There, it was a way to go further without having intercourse. But it was they, they didn't expect um, reciprocity in that you know in, in that um, encounter. And after a while, I started saying, "Hey, you know, what if some guy, every time you were alone with him, asked you for a glass of water to get him a glass of water from the kitchen, but he never got you a glass of water, or you know, mm. he did it was super begrudging, like, oh gosh, you want me to, uh, you know, mm. and." you would never stand for it right. and they would laugh and say well when you put it that way and i would say well why wouldn't you put it that way <laughs> exactly you willing <laughs> to go down on somebody than to get them you know to perform a sexual act and to get a glass of water and i think the answer to that was partly that nobody had challenged it you know when, when they when it was challenged they kind of went hey but also it comes back again to that disconnect between the idea that being proud of your body is dressing a certain way as opposed to the shame that they felt in their own um, sexuality and their own genitals, that they, they that was this weird kind of combination of feeling they were sacred and icky and right. not wanting anybody in that area. So so what is this orgasm gap? And, and But a bigger question is, how do you close it? <laughs> um, the, the orgasm gap is that for, I mean, it depends on, on the, if it's a it's a one-off hookup or people people have one way well on average women have one orgasm for every three that men have um unless and in the two ways that those oh that doesn't seem fair (laughs) i no, it doesn't does it um and so in relationships um it tends to be a little more even Still not even, but more even. So you're much, and, and I think that most um, older women kind of know this, whereas the the hookup culture uh, cloaks this idea that in a in a one-off hookup, um, you are likely to get you know a feeling of being wanted, a feeling of of being desired, uh, a warm body, a war story, an adrenaline rush you are a whole lot less likely to get good sex or the tools you need to either create good sex or emotional intimacy. So the orgasm gap is going to be the biggest in those sort of hookup situations. Smaller when mm-hmm. um, 
you're in a relationship. The smallest is if you're in a same-sex relationship. Uh, so that's one way you could close it. But, you know, in cultures where female orgasm is valued, the orgasm gas disappears. So it's not really just... And where that. is that? What culture you is that? I know, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> there are some hello. cultures where it's valued. Most, not so much ours. Um, no. and But, you know, so things like when they do studies of, like, masturbation, men and women masturbate to orgasm it takes the exact same amount of time um there's so there's it's not necessarily so much this idea that we have been led to believe that women's bodies or orgasms are so much more complicated than men's it's that again you know we are completely we don't talk about it we don't talk about you know we talk about men's bodies men's orgasms if you watch tv or watch the movies male masturbation is you know, is constantly referenced as a joke or as whatever, as, as an assumed thing. Mm -hmm. But nobody talks about women at all. So I think we really silence these discussions. Oh, definitely. Female pleasure. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I remember, oh my gosh, this was so many years ago. I was in my 20s and I was working in an office and there were, I don't know, three or four of us women and somehow or another I... I said something about masturbation. Oh, these women were like horrified. Like what? Yeah. You know, like no, no, no. You know, and they wouldn't even want to talk about it. I just thought it was so like wow. You know, I was really pretty surprised. Um, yeah, and yeah. One, one of the things that um, was really interesting to me when I was writing Girls and Sex was that girls would say to me when I said, you know, do you masturbate? They'd say, well, I have a boyfriend to do that, but. Which, you know, among other things, I mean, among, aside from giving your power or your, you know, the key, your pleasure over to somebody else, you're doing it with a teenage boy who probably yeah. his idea of yeah. that is like rummaging around inside of you like he's looking for his car keys. You know, there's, it's not going to be a great experience. But the other side of it is that the boys um, would not want the girls to perform manual sex on them they wanted oral sex because they would say i can do that myself huh. so there was also again like this presumption that the boys were doing that but the girls would wouldn't because that was the boyfriend's job um and you know it, it was another one of those ways that mm -hmm. that the, re the relationships became unequal and that girls were disconnected from understanding their own bodies do you think social media has impacted this culture oh no <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> like what? I'm like what? Something. I don't know. I just got to yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I mean, the, again, for for in so many ways. I mean, it, the and the two sort of ways with kids that I, I mean, obviously, we know about the uptick in anxiety and depression, and all that around social media. Um, the positive way, obviously, is that I think that there, it's it has been a source of activism and collectivism in terms of things like the Me Too moment. Um, but it also it's a double-edged sword. You know, it also has reinforced this idea that sexiness, sex, sexiness is the same as sexuality and that, you know, sexiness is this really narrow idea of presenting yourself in a very particular way that you're chasing the likes all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and that oh, that's, right. You know, yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and, uh, and that girls, you know, again, you have to perform what it means to be a sexual being rather than feeling it in your own body. And the other way is that the ways that kids negotiate the whole hookup culture over social media. So when you walk into the party as a teenager, you've already had all these Snapchats and texts and everything about 
did you, do you like so-and-so or would you want to hook up with so-and-so? Yeah, I want to hook up with so-and-so. I'm going to tell so-and-so you want to hook up with them. Okay, so like when you walk in the party, everybody knows that you're going to be hooking up with Bobby and everybody's waiting for you to do it. And, and by hooking up, I don't mean having intercourse necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, right. you might, it might mean making out. It might mean anything. But mm-hmm. that you're going to have some kind of sexual encounter with Bobby. Bobby knows it. You know it. Your entire class knows it. Everybody's watching. Everybody's waiting. You walk in the other room and it happens. Everybody's talking about it. And everybody, it's on everybody's you know, uh, Snapchat on Monday morning. And that's why you've got your nieces coming in and going like, you know, hey, Aunt Francesca, are you hooking up? Because it's, it's like public... Mm-hmm. knowledge it's publicly discussed and that puts you know that that's huge pressure and also dehumanizing yeah exactly so what do you think is the best way to go about promoting self-love and confidence in young girls uh yeah i, I think first of all really helping them question some of the issues and ideas that the culture feeds them the popular culture feeds them about what empowerment means in terms of the body that I think any time that girls can feel in their bodies as opposed to observers of their bodies, it's really important, whether that's through mm-hmm. um, doing sports, doing yoga, doing meditation, you know, anything that, that makes them feel part of their bodies. I, and as adults, as adult women, I think one of the biggest favors we can do to girls is not commenting negatively on our own bodies in front of them. Right, right. So yeah. I think really, you know, if you can just, if you're feeling like your jeans are tight today, mm-hmm. just don't mention it in front of your daughter. Right. Yeah, I have a friend. Bo- especially I have a friend for bodies who, like yeah. yours. Yeah, I have, a fr- <laughs> I have a friend who's 5'3", 115 pounds, and you never see her without her saying, I feel so fat. I look so fat. It's disgusting. Right. Well, you know what? Her daughter ended up becoming anorexic. Yeah. And I, and that's not. I mean, I don't mean to you know blame somebody, especially somebody I don't know. But right. you know, I, I it, it. Well, I mean, girls, it, have, yeah. girls have so many messages being beamed to them right. that they are their bodies and that their bodies are not good enough. Right. That to have those messages coming from somebody that they love, either their mother or their father, because fathers' um, relationship, the way that fathers comment on girls' bodies is very strongly linked to body image and to to eating disorders. So fathers have a big role to play. Or or the way a father, you know, even, you know, whether a father finds his daughter beautiful or not. Yeah. And and finding her beautiful for things that are not conventional. You know, not just saying she's beautiful when she's looking all made up. But, you know, when she's sweating because she just went for a run and used her body for, you know, for exercise or or when she's, you know, just jazzed about, you know, a play she was just in or mm-hmm. times that, you know, beauty is not just about, you know, putting on your makeup or doing whatever, but finding all different ways to value your daughter and, you know, allow that beauty to come from the inside and from her connection to herself rather than how she's appearing to somebody else. Exactly. How do you um, think that mothers can go about healing generational traumas? Because we know that they certainly mm. exist, right? Yeah, it's such a tough one. It is a tough one. At best, I mean, I know that for that for me, I was anorexic when I was a teenager, and have you know had a lot of body image issues. And I can't say those are gone just because I grew up, but I just, in some ways, I had to you know turn to my husband when we had a little girl. I was really you know it it worried me, and and I and I write about this in in Don't Call Me Princess, and I kind of said, okay, dude, 
you're the one who's going to have to do the food thing because I'm just afraid of what I'm going to pass along. And I kind of, I've never written about this, but I sort of thought, I'm just going to identify like three areas that I am not going to install, you know, the buttons that were installed in me. Yeah. <laughs> this one, you know, and I can't be perfect. I'm not a perfect parent. I'm going to screw up in all kinds of different ways. And I may pass along some of the stuff that I wish I didn't. But if I can just change three things, one of them being body image, mm-hmm. you know, I will feel like I did enough. I'm not going to strive to like make everything different. But if I can just do this and focus on this, then I'll feel successful. So um, that's the way I, I look at it. But it is it is really hard. I mean, it's the same with us. We have to identify our traumas. And when I talk about the issues in girls and sex, I'm well aware that those issues are not unique to girls. You know, that adult women have the same traumas. They have the same silences. Mm-hmm. They have the same struggles. I was thinking that when you were saying that. It's like, this isn't yeah. just young girls. For sure. I mean, and, and you know, my, my, and in some ways, that's a lot harder to to reckon with or, or harder to get, I don't know if it's harder to reckon with, but it's, people are very eager to try to figure out how to make it better for their girls. I think it's scarier if I wrote a book that was about, us as adult women, in some ways that feels scarier. And I, and I kind of hope that in trying to make it better for our girls, we will make it better for ourselves as well. Mm-hmm. So let's talk, um, we have a, just a few minutes left, but let's talk about your next project. We touched on just a little bit about boys and sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you want to know? I want to know it all. I want to know it all. Uh, we've, we've got seven minutes left. You're going to have to do another interview in a couple of years. On yeah, that. exactly. Uh, we've got seven minutes you know, left, I and think, I want to spend that time talking about that because I think it's important. I know. One, yeah. of the, one of the things that's been, I was really worried that boys wouldn't talk to me. Um, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, that has not been true. Yeah, I'm surpri- I was surprised. I, yeah. Yeah, and I think that the, what's been, the reason, this is why I've thought about it, is that I thought they have, they have, I, I thought they're going to look at me and they're going to see their mom and they're not going to talk to me. Mm. And yeah. And then I realized that there's another thing that uh, there's another model for talking to an adult woman who's holding a notepad, a therapist. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's what it, fe- I mean, they say it all the time. I mean, they, it turns out that I would say that with the boys, what's been really surprising is how much they want to talk about emotions. Really? And, yeah, and it's been, and, and part of that may be, again, you know, maybe for everything that they're not telling me about, like, it's, I think it is really hard for them to say, like, the words of the locker room type talk. They will talk about talking that way, but they cannot look at me and say those words. Some of them can once we've really got, I, right now I have an 18-year-old boy who sends me porn links, not I mean, because I want him to, not because he's harassing me, but because I want to know things about more about how they think about porn. And so he, we've gotten to the point in our discussions where he's sending me links. So I, I think they're talking to me. But, um, but, but even more than that, they have really wanted to talk about vulnerability. They've wanted to talk about insecurity. They've wanted to talk about confusion. Oh, um, tell us if, some of those things. So what are they saying? Um, well... You know, I mean, it's, it's a, they, they've talked about uh, their um, feelings about 
not wanting to be part of the hookup culture, but wanting relationships. And I just had a boy the other day I, I was it. talking to in college who was saying um, he really wants a girlfriend. But he said, you can't just go up to a girl and ask her, you know, a girl you don't know and ask her out on a date. Right. And I said, so t- so you, you're telling me you can go up to a girl when you're drunk at a party and have who you don't know, take her home and you can have intercourse. But you can't go up to a girl and ask her out on a date. Oh, and crazy? he said, yeah, that sounds pretty ridiculous, doesn't it? And I said, yes, it does. <laughs> that sounds pretty ridiculous from where I'm sitting. And no he said, but kidding. you just can't. And right. so he doesn't have a girlfriend, you know, and he's like, I don't know, you know, it, and so that, How sad. Know, so that um, there's been a lot of interesting um, issues on boys and unwanted sex because, you know, boys aren't really supposed to ever say no, but they don't always want to say yes. And they find themselves in some positions, not where violence is threatened like girls, but they find themselves in positions that are uncomfortable or that are unwanted and don't know how to react to that because they're always supposed to be into it um so uh, that's been a whole interesting set of area i mean there's just been a that lot that is very been, interesting i hadn't even thought about that i know and it's been interesting for me i think that one of the challenges for me as a woman doing this work is that sometimes they'll say things to me that don't that i don't hear you know that, that it, it takes like multiple boys before i'll go oh and that was one of them where you know where the first boy said something to me about you know when he was 14 this girl who was a senior in high school uh his friends left him at a party and he was alone and um this girl took him in the other room and and gave him a blowjob and he didn't want to but he didn't know how to say no and and he said i don't know what to call that you know and and i thought huh (laughs) you know that was kind of my response huh and then like the fourth time i heard that story i thought oh you know this is actually something that needs some looking into here so there's it's been um that's very interesting i know it it is interesting and so that there's been some just really um and and the porn conversation has been deeply interesting Mm -hmm. with the guys oh yeah Uh, tell us a little bit about that well you know there's it's a range of guys who just go it has no impact on me whatsoever you know to guys who feel shame but do it anyway to a subgroup of guys who stopped um who have stopped and and in in the most extreme case i was talking to a a 19 year old and he pulled out his phone for some reason and i said whoa dude you've got a flip phone what's with that get a flip phone and he said oh yeah i didn't you know i just couldn't stop watching porn so i just had to get a flip phone because it was the only way i could make myself stop and then we ended up having a whole discussion about, you know, how how he what how he thought about porn and how porn had eroticized um, images that he didn't want eroticized for him, you know, that that were that were degrading or that were uh, violent or repulsive. Mm-hmm. And he said he just didn't want it in his head anymore. So the only way for him to get rid of that was to get a flip phone. What um, what about girls? Do you think are girls watching porn as well? Young girls? Not to, not at the same rates, but absolutely. And um I mean in some ways you don't even have to watch porn to have feel its influence these days because right. porn has had such an influence on music, on videos, on advertisements, you know, on on sitcoms, on everything. Um but you know what really changed that that I think parents need to know about in terms of this for both boys and girls. Um, is that in 2005, 
Pornhub went online, mm-hmm. and Pornhub is like the YouTube of porn, um, and it's all it's all pirated or or purposely put up um, clips from movies. It's not amateur porn. It's you know it's um, it's from uh, professional shoots, and so for the first time you could look at anything, uh, a lot of stuff that you you know wouldn't want to even imagine is out there with for free. Whereas up until that point, you needed a credit card. So that's why the whole issue of porn has become so front and center, because for the last 13 years, increasingly, um, kids have been able to see anything at any time in any way with nobody knowing and for, without paying for it with the click of a mouse. And so that's why the average age of porn exposure and the amount of porn exposure has drifted so much younger. That's really scary. Well, it is, because what happens is that kids learn, boys in particular, learn to associate um, their arousal. You know, they're looking at porn before they've, sometimes before they've even, you know, really gone through puberty. And so it's it's happening in conjunction. Mm -hmm. And you you have to wonder, I mean, this generation of, of young people are guinea pigs in that regard, and probably like drugs, you know, some of them can... Do can recreationally use porn, and it doesn't really make a big difference to them. But some of them will have a real problem, not just in the amount of porn that they consume, but in how it affects their interactions in real life. And it certainly is affecting um, aspects of, you know, what's called the sexual script of the, of, of the way sex should go right. for young people. So you're seeing a real rise in certain behaviors like choking. Oh. Um, oh. You know that. When when I say that to somebody our age, oh. yeah, I get the reaction you just got. Like, yeah, exactly. Um, but mm-hmm. that's that's you know, kids, young people are are that's a a sort of thing because that's a thing in porn. You know, that's right. Right. There's nowhere else that that would have come from because that is not something that was a thing before. Mm-hmm. Right, Peggy. Um, we do have to finish up. We have a minute left. Is there any question that I haven't asked you? Um, oh, gosh, we could talk about everything forever, couldn't we, Francesca? Yes, we could. I mean, I think, but, but I'm just wondering, think, is there anything that you wanted to share with the listening audience that we haven't mentioned um, or talked about? I guess just, you know, for me, as not so much a question, but I just feel like it's been such a gift and a privilege to be able to be a writer for all these years and to have this chance to you know write about what is really half the world's population you know i mean I, exactly. it's, it's not really yeah. a beat yeah. you know yeah. it's and and it's been just such a joy and it's been so much fun to be able to really have the perspective of all this time working on these issues and I'm, I'm just really grateful that i've been able to do it all right peggy orenstein author of don't call me princess thank you so much for being with us here today on talk with francesca it's been a pleasure Thanks, Francesca. It's always fun. Okay, take care. All right, it's time to wrap things up. We've got to say goodbye. I hope you enjoyed the show. See you next week, same time, same place. If you missed part of the show, you can go to my recent shows page on my website, talkwithfrancesca.com. You can also listen on iTunes. So see you next week. Don't try.